Hello and welcome to Block Solid Podcast, where we talk about the evolution of technology and the property market, the newest tech that enhances and revolutionizes the world of real estate and assets as we know it, and how we, the owners, the buyers, the renters, the investors, and the entrepreneurs can benefit from it all. I'm Yael Tamar, CMO and co-founder of Solid Block, pioneer in real estate organization, and today I'd like to welcome two very special guests. The first is Lars Sire Christensen and Benny Isenberg. Both are very, very interesting in their own way, and they are actually connected through their work on the current project, which we're going to talk about extensively today. And on top of that, Lars is a Danish businessman, entrepreneur, and investor originally from Denmark, but has been living in Switzerland since 2010. He's married and has five daughters with his wife, Yvonne. Lars's interests and activities outside of business are extremely varied and include philosophy, politics, fine wine, arts, sport, and charity. He's a member of the Montpellier Society and supports various classic liberal and libertarian organizations and causes. He's also an avid commentator on political society and business affairs and hosts his own primetime TV show, The Road to Sire, on startups and investment. Lars's professional background is quite versatile as well. He's an experienced restaurateur. He was the co-founder of what was to become the Saxo Bank and served 20 years as its CEO. Today, he focuses on investments through his private family office, Sire Capital, and he is the chairman of the board at Concordium. Lars also has a super interesting book that just came out, and we'll talk about that. It just came out before Christmas. It's called Sire, A Road Trip. So Benny is an entrepreneur-oriented team member with 15 years of experience in offline and online storytelling and marketing with a strong academic background. He's a true believer in the crypto world and in the blockchain technology and is an artisan in his industry since 2015. He describes himself as a cypherpunk by essence, pragmatic by reason. Self-taught coder, coding mainly in Rust, Python, and Erlang. Benny co-founded in 2005 the former Polytech Institute, a European center of excellence and innovation, and a do-tank dedicated to promoting novel concepts and innovation, empowering the different stakeholders in a citizen-driven digital world. He's also a prolific writer and published two books, Face and Le Jeu de la Paix, with preface from Shimon Peres, the late prime minister and president of Israel, and Voyage en Orient, and now he's writing a third book in progress, this book will link between philosophy and the crypto evolution. The name of the book is Cryptosophia. In the past, he wrote for Le Devoir, Affaire de Gare. I hope my French is up to date. And he wrote for many publications. He's married to Olivia and the happiest dad on earth and a proud friend of Lula and Ziggy, which I'm assuming are probably animals. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. So I want to talk about the company, which is Concordium. And I think is going to play a really interesting role in the blockchain space. And both of you are the founding members and the big part of the company. And I want to talk about your personal lives and the journey. So I'll start with Lars. Lars, tell me more about what kind of need that Concordium was solving and how that idea came about. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having us here. Um, well, you mentioned a lot of things, but the most important thing I probably did so far was Saxo Bank. And Saxo Bank was predominantly a currency trader, also a multi-asset platform more and more, but originally very much focused on currencies. So I became aware of cryptocurrencies quite early because I saw some kind of relationship to what we were doing. And so I kind of followed Bitcoin since relatively early stages and took an interest in the space, space made a few investments and have followed more than most bankers, let's put it that way, right? And also Saxo Bank is obviously not a traditional bank. It's more of a trading platform. So in many ways, 
we're not traditional bankers in any case. But following the space for a long time, I was quite enthusiastic and quite evangelist around my banking friends who thought it sounded completely crazy at the time and quite enjoyed being part of that space and the innovation and all the young kids and everything going on. As time went by, I began to have some reservations around the early generations. Predominantly, as you mentioned, I have a libertarian streak and I like actually that aspect that there's a certain disruptive thinking behind it. But also having been in banking for more than 20 years, acutely aware of the heavy regulation rules that, that you need to comply to if you want to do business in the real world. I see and saw some challenges in the proliferation of a lot of anonymous actors and a lot of things that were not very opaque, which I understand is part of the concept, but just doesn't work very well in a regulated world. And while I think there's a space for that and a room for that, I also felt there was a room for something else, something where you combine all the wonderful things of a distributed blockchain, a permissionless blockchain, no single point of failure, the, the whole creation of a new market, much like the internet that we were early adopters of at Saxo Bank, but also trying to find a way to combine that with respecting the rules that, that are sort of necessary if you want to see mainstream adoption. And I would like to also see blockchain achieving mainstream adoption in my lifetime. And I don't think we're there. And I think the lack of accountability and the lack of identification in some cases is a big part of the problem. So we try to think up a way to solve that with Concordium, where we combine all the good things with a high level of privacy, but also ultimately the ability to identify the users under certain quite stringent conditions. You know, which I think you're not going to get a big serious business or a financial institution, let alone a central bank or government institution, to use a blockchain unless you tick that box. So that was kind of the big idea. You could say more ideological than technical, I guess. There's no disrespect to the other to the other blockchains they have in another place, but I wanted to create this particular hybrid. So Not just to recap, you yeah. so you saw the need, you saw that blockchain solves really interesting problems, really interesting solutions, and you come from the banking background, and you couldn't find a blockchain solution in the market that was geared towards institutions and banks when it comes to privacy, when it comes to security, when it comes to just serving the client's needs, right? I would say I couldn't find anybody that had implemented that at the ground level. Of course, people are now coming around to understanding that this is a problem. So there's lots of ID plays being applied on top of other chains today because people are realizing that this is a problem. But that's still not the same as requiring it from the ground up as an absolute precondition for the foundation. And then that, I still think that we're pretty much the only ones out there pursuing that line. You know, we don't see it as an afterthought. We see it as a critical component of the foundational layer. On top of that, of course, there's a whole range of other issues. If you want to play a real role as a foundational blockchain, you got to have huge scalability. You have to, at the same time as you prevent anonymity, create a much better privacy around the transactions that you actually do. And all of that we have worked on. But the fundamental ideological difference, I think, is this insistence that somewhere you can be accountable for if you do criminal things and you're not allowed an anonymity to operate in if you otherwise wouldn't be in society. And that's, of course, controversial yeah. for some of the first generations, but I think it's needed for mainstream adoption. Now, what I also think is very important is that the science behind the blockchain is rock solid. So that was the first thing I set out to do, looking high and low, because I'm not a cryptographer. I'm not even a programmer. I'm more of a businessman. But searching high and low for the right science, and actually much to my surprise, I found it in my own country in Denmark, in Bush University, that's an absolutely top university when it comes to exactly cryptography, actually has regularly scored in top two, top three in the world for the last 30 years. So really, really outstanding group of people. And I uh, approached 
approached them and said, would you be interested in helping me develop such a project? And again, a little bit to my surprise, because I thought they would be overwhelmed with various good and not so good ideas, but they were very willing to. And that has led to an extremely close collaboration with the Aarhus University, where we have now what we call the Concordium Blockchain Research Center, that doesn't only support us, but it's an initiative that does science into blockchain and comes out with various innovations. And actually, again, maybe partially because of that, that has put university back as the number one university for cryptography in the last three years. So that's very exciting to have people that actually produce some of the building blocks that have been used in blockchain way before anybody had really thought about Bitcoin or Ethereum. So much yeah. of this stuff, as you know, is cryptographic primitives, as you say, things that have proven their value over decades and much it built in the 80s and the 90s like the hash function and some of these guys were essential in, in building that and, and of course they built a whole department of young stars as well got it very very interesting i want to touch upon two points that you mentioned one is the fact that you were there when the banks started moving over to the internet sphere and what i see today is a new banking apps that are let's say only mobile or only for immigrants. And like I've seen a bank that was opened for non-US residents in the US, right? So things like that. And you have these niches and maybe there will be a bank out there that will be blockchain first, right? Almost like mobile first, blockchain first. And I think that you guys are kind of putting yourselves out there as a platform that will enable those types of apps like banking, which is blockchain first or payments that are blockchain first and so on and so forth. And I wanted to ask you, when you were in that space, the banking and the internet came and disrupted it, do you see the similarities of what decisions that were made back then in terms of how you will operate and which platforms to use and what's happening now with the emergence of blockchain? First of all, I would like to just underline that we don't see this as a particularly financial sector-focused yeah. project. This okay. is a foundational blockchain. Think a little bit like Ethereum that wasn't made for any particular industry either. And we believe that what's really needed out there is a foundational blockchain that can be used by a whole bunch of different industries and different businesses. And then we will team up with people that are specialists in those industries. But we're providing the foundation. And that foundation will be whoever wins that game, or there'll probably be multiple winners in it, that will also overall in the long run gain more and more traction due to the big market that it will create. And that has a lot of comparisons to early stages in the internet. When we brought out our first internet trading platform, there was less than 100 million users of the internet. Those were very early days and the big banks were nowhere near bringing out the platforms at the time. We had maybe a three, four year first mover advantage vis-a-vis -vis the big boys. And what was interesting back then, and I think you should not underestimate today, is that the internet's early stages were not driven top-down by big organizations because big organizations, particularly banks, are extremely inflexible and inelastic and very slow to make moves on anything. That the internet was driven by sort of SMEs and smaller shops that saw, here's somewhere that I can enhance my business in various ways through the internet. I can make a little web shop or I can distribute some information, various things, right? And I think that's what's going to happen in blockchain, to be honest. The big boys, for sure, they're interesting to talk to. And we have some really interesting people that will be using a Concordium for various industries, not least the automotive, actually. But I think that short-term adoption will come from a different place. It will come from smaller businesses that see an advantage differentiator and using blockchain for various things. And I think relatively simple things like provenance, like timestamping, like obviously secure data handling. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's what I saw with the internet. And too many people are focused on the huge transformative deal here with a big bank or something. And big banks don't move. And they're not going to move on to okay. distributed blockchains in the short term. But a lot of other people will because they also have easier 
doesn't have better conditions for doing it. They don't have an enormous overlay of regulation where they've got to be absolutely mm-hmm. sure that they don't make any mistakes. That's actually bringing me to a very important point. So now I'd love for Benny to jump in and tell us who will be the early adopters of your blockchain ecosystem. So definitely the early adopters, once we are going to go live somewhere in the beginning of Q2 this year, will be the developers and the coders of this world. Our platform is a layer one platform. So it means that it is built for developers to take the responsibility to create the necessary tooling together with us, obviously, and to onboard, you know, as much as possible the business world. We are not trying, you know, to solve, I would say, the technical issues together with the use cases issues, like our, you know, dear friends and competitors. We have understood, I would say, in a very pragmatic way, what is our early mission? And what is our early mission is to provide the market with the necessary technology to build on top of it, the necessary also tooling for the businesses. Okay, that's awesome. So I want to touch upon one more thing that Lars said about criminal or illicit activities that go through blockchain. And I just wanted to touch upon something that I saw in the news yesterday that I thought was so interesting. Many people think that a lot of blockchain and Bitcoin activity is illicit and criminal. Even yesterday, there was an address by Janet Yellen, who was Joe Biden's pick for Secretary of Treasury. So she was talking about a concern when it comes to criminal activity and terrorist financing. And all of that is a false narrative. Apparently, you know, in 2019, the criminal activity represented just over 2% of all crypto transactions, roughly $21.4 billion. And in 2020, that went down to 0.34. And in 2020, we had a record number of transactions, actually, as you know, Bitcoin had a really good year. So you see that how blockchain is by itself is improving the security standards. And that was only 10 billion in transaction volume, right? If we compare that to cash activity, even before Bitcoin came out, right, in 2009, 2.7% of global GDP, which was $1.6 trillion, is basically criminal illicit activity going through cash. So when you look at the activity going in blockchain, compare 10 billion to 1.6 trillion, that just gives you a proportion for that. So I just kind of wanted to address that very quickly. Now, guys, I read in the news that Concordium recently joined FinTech Association of Japan, becoming the first blockchain company to do so. And as a company that is starting to operate in Japan, as tokenization also becomes legal there, I am very interested in understanding what kind of synergies you hope will come out of that association, what kind of partnerships you guys are working to form there, and how will you leverage that market? So this partnership is very important for us because Japan, as you may know better than us, is the most advanced country when it comes to crypto regulation or blockchain regulation. Mm -hmm. And we have been targeting Japan as a kind of test market for us, for our, you know, compliance readiness approach and our ID layer at the protocol level is our ultimate, I would say, weapon for that. When we approached the FinTech Association of Japan, we weren't sure that we could get any answer at all because they are really anti-blockchain and they are very afraid of you know dealing with anybody dealing with crypto or unregulated, I would say, technology. And we were very surprised while once they have read our white paper and so what we are doing to be accepted as the first blockchain supplier, eh, together with a lot of great names there. I mean. We are sitting in the same you know, room with AXA, with Accenture, with MasterCard, with the uh-huh. IBM. Well, yeah. it's all great names. And we are a very humble and little startup at this stage. And we understood then that there is something that is actually really missing in the market. And this piece in the puzzle that is missing is the identity, I would say, paradigm that we are bringing to the table for the first time at the protocol level. We know that we are not the only, I would say, decentralized identity supplier or enabler. We are not the first. I know 
very good, you know, the civic people, for example. But what we have done is unique because we have put this at the core of our architecture. And this is, you know, the backbone of our blockchain, the identity layer. And thanks to this identity layer, the Japanese FinTech Association has recognized in Concordium the first blockchain to be ready to be regulated in Japan. And our goal is obviously to serve the business world in Japan. And we are now in contact with, I would say, something like 18. Yesterday, we reached 18 school of coding and uh, developers associations that are going to work with us closely to create the necessary, I would say, technology environment to onboard Mm -hmm. businesses as much as possible in a full compliant way. You know, I think it's really, really clever that you guys are approaching it from the ground up. So basically going to developers rather than going to organizations and banks. And as Lars mentioned, it takes a long, long time and the sales process is very long to go to organizations, especially in the financial space. So once you get it adopted by developers, I think that will make a major impression on the decision makers, you know, as they decide which blockchains to go with and which infrastructure to go with when they actually make a decision to move into this space, right? Even though Definitely. the majority of blockchains are yeah are already implementing blockchain and the majority of banks are already implementing blockchain on some level. So I really, really like that approach as a marketer myself. So I want to move a little bit in the direction of non-blockchain, non-concordium and just talk about you guys for a minute. Now, Lars, we talked a little bit about your book before the show started and it just sounds so much fun. Like what is this road trip that you took and why did you feel compelled to write a book on your story? Just before I do that, and I don't want to make it a major discussion point, but you pointed out the start of the, the thing there's not a lot of illicit activity on, on the first generations. Jeez. And I agree, I agree with that. But if you spent 25 years in, let's say, real regulated business, you will understand that that's not enough, right? Uh, it's not enough that you either cannot uh, document or you cannot prove that something is illicit. And I believe that the amount of illicit activity is very low. The problem is the anonymity. I mean, I've been a head of CEO of a bank and then listen to this, where I had to repaper every single client that we had, where we had tons of information on them, but the regulator wanted not one utility bill, but two utility bills to prove their place of residence. Imagine you have to go through your entire client base and ask them for an extra bill from the electricity company. I mean, that's where we are with regulation, right? It's not, I mean, we didn't have people, obviously, that we even remotely thought were criminal activity on our platform. Nevertheless, we had to repay hundreds of thousands of clients with an extra utility bill. That's how far out this regulatory thing is today. So it's not enough that you, anonymity is the problem right there. And it's not enough that 98% of a system is legit if there's a risk that 2% are not. That, that's just what, you know, sometimes right. this underestimates how severe this stuff is. Let, leaving that aside, let's go to something more fun. My, Wait, my but <laughs> Wait a second, but I have to ask, so you guys are addressing this anonymity issue with your platform, right? Absolutely. Everybody has to go to an approved identity issue. That would be people that the government would use for their mm-hmm. own identification so you can choose your identity issuer. So we're not saying I have to use this or that. That identity issuer will identify. It give you a kind of proof that you have this identification somewhere. It will not be directly on the blockchain because of a GDPR problem. But we wouldn't want people to not have privacy. But somewhere in the system, they have identified themselves. That's Got kind it. of the fundamental main way to That's ensure awesome. that. But mm-hmm. the cool thing is once you have that, 
you can actually build through zero knowledge proofs, etc., much, much better privacy. Because the funny thing is, if you're a criminal, you'd be an idiot to do criminality on Bitcoin because you're leaving a wonderful trail of everything you ever did, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you have anonymity, but no privacy. What you really want is not anonymity, but privacy. Mm-hmm. Flip the whole thing on its head, you and you got the concordium the line of thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Let, let's talk about something visionary instead of all the regulatory issues. We, yeah, we yeah, yeah. Face, right? But it is important that the industry understands that this is yeah. not child's play. It's a very, very serious thing, right? Yeah. If you want mainstream adoption, obviously, right? Absolutely. Not, so on to the book. Tell us mm-hmm. about the idea yeah. and how you did that. Well, I mean, it's actually the second book is a lady that wrote a book about Saxon Bank in 2008 about the bank, my partner, Kim Fournier, and, and myself. And she came back to me about a couple of years ago and said, was it not time to do a follow-up? You know, stuff must have happened in those 10 years. And I said, well, you're right, because I sold my shares and I live a completely different life now to back then. So she suggested it's more of an interview book. She wrote it. I didn't write it, but she said, Lars, I know you have a really bad memory, and unfortunately, she's right. So she said, well, what can we do to trigger your memory? How about we visit all the places where you grew up and where you did business, etc." So we took it. That's why it's called a road trip. So we went around mostly Europe to locations where I spent a lot of time, which would include uh, Switzerland, London, and various places in Denmark, obviously, south of Spain, where I went just after school. And that actually was true. It triggered a lot of memories. So it's kind of a fun book. It's not as serious as the stuff that Benny writes, right? But uh, <laughs> just a little travel back through time and a lot of old fun stories from old days. So it's also nice for me to actually remember some of these things, you know, uh, yep. just turn. 58 yesterday, so it's important that you, you, you check some of these things before you forget them entirely. Yeah, happy birthday. Can you tell Thank me you. a story from your book? This is a long, long list of anecdotes and, and stuff that happened. I can tell you one from this space, which is probably the worst thing that has happened to me in this space, and that is that having been part of the Bitcoin early stage, I put out the word to my friends, this cannot be the end of it. There must be something else coming out, improving, and there must be a next generation. And a few people pointed me to this little villa in Zouk where about 20 kids were sitting building something brand new called Ethereum, right? Yeah. And I went down to see them at least half a year before they launched. Mm-hmm. I had a good impression and they were raising $19 million at the time. And I said to them, okay, you know, I'd like to put a million in, right? And they were like falling off their chairs and said, nobody ever said more than 5000 or 10000 And oh, are you going to talk about cash or is it Bitcoin or what is it? And I said, you know, I just want to be part of this because I think it's fun. And in the end, said, oh, can you do Bitcoin? We're worried about regulatory aspects of taking cash. And in the end, they managed to talk me out of it, right? But because by making it so difficult to put this bloody money in, and this is like 4% of the Genesis block, right? This would have been worth, I don't know, $4 billion today. So this, of course, is not the greatest memory of all time, but... Uh, <laughs> But there's a lot of little stories of things that didn't succeed and some stuff that thankfully also did succeed. But that's a true story that I was like, I really stood there really with a check in my hand, more or less, to buy a 3 or 4% of the Genesis block of Ethereum. And they somehow managed to make it so complicated that we didn't do it. That's amazing. That just shows you kind of the mismatch. I don't even know if it's a generational gap or it's like in the industrial gap, right? No, I love the story, actually. I'll follow up with another question about another passion of yours. And the high-tech restaurant concept that you created, The Alchemist, and which you opened in 2019, I'd love to understand what it means, the high-tech restaurant, what kind of customers it caters to, and what kind of dishes it serves, you know, how it's different from anything else. 
I like the restaurant business very much. During my banking days, I've done a lot of hospitality and ate at a lot of good restaurants. I own another restaurant, the only three-star Mislang restaurant in Denmark. But I always had this idea that technology disrupted every other business, more or less. But restaurants still the same. It's a plate, it's a knife, a fork, and a wine glass, right? And it doesn't be very different what's on that plate, but there's no real change to the frame, right? And I've been thinking a long time, you could do something great with technology, but I obviously couldn't do it myself because I'm not a chef. So I was lucky enough to run into a young chef about four years ago that had some of the same visions. And then we went and did it together. And what it is, you really have to see it, I would say, to fully appreciate it. It's probably the most unique restaurant in the world today. It's also been enormously hyped. There's a huge waiting list to get into it, even these days. It's kind of like a planetarium where we have a huge cupola over the main dining room where you have some incredible technology that's, that's absolutely cutting edge, very, very fine pixelated technology that can kind of change entirely the room that you're in. Also, you shift through five different rooms during the meal to get different experiences. We serve 50 dishes during the meal. It takes about six hours to eat it. And many of these dishes are created in, with some very sophisticated technology that gives you completely new ways of serving serving various foods and playing with, you know, what if we call it something completely differently? Would people still realize that what they were eating? What if we, this little bit of, you know, what they call the molecular that you yeah. split up a uh, dish in, in its various components. So a little bit inspired by El Bulli from the old days. That was once the most famous restaurant in the world, but doesn't exist anymore. So it's a very unique place. I really think you, you have to see it. It cost me also an arm and a leg to put up. So it's not going to be a great a great return on investment, but I have a lot of fun with it. And, and we open up. It's a little bit different under Corona, but normally we open up for like three months reservations and they're sold out in in a I'll, minute, I'll right? Put it's my like, name like, now. Yeah, no, well, you know, we'll always find an extra place for a good person. So let me know. Yeah, but it, no, it's I'm, it's a fantastic experience, and I think, to be honest, it's probably the most crazy restaurant in the world right now. So I love come it. to Copenhagen, and you can get a table at Alchemist and uh, check it out. Oh, for sure. That's exactly what I'm planning to do. We all just got, our company all just got vaccinated. So we're planning our next road trip. <laughs> yeah, well, you guys are yeah. way ahead of the rest of us down yeah. there here. So well done. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, the restaurants, there are quite a few restaurants out there that try to be, you know, innovative and high tech, but I think very few um, actually surprise. And it sounds like you created something extraordinary. From my experience over here in Tel Aviv, we have a very interesting restaurant that I used to take all my friends that came over. I'm forgetting what it's called, but I think it's eating in the dark and it's basically in complete darkness. Okay. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the servers are usually visually impaired and or yeah, completely yeah. blind. We yeah, had so a concept like that in Copenhagen for a few years. It's quite yeah. interesting. It's just yeah. again playing with when you don't have the visual impression, things can taste completely differently, right? Exactly. Which is the, it's yeah. really interesting, you know, that your senses play so much with your brain, yeah. right? And uh, makeup, for sure. You know. Yeah, so that, that, I think we've had it for about 15 years, and it's adjacent oh. to a theater where, you know, you have both blind and deaf actors playing. I'll try I, that next time. You have an interesting restaurant scene in, in Tel Aviv. In Tel Aviv, yeah. I will definitely try that next time I'm around. Yeah, amazing. So going back to Benny, I am just fascinated by your... PhD background, all the books and the philosophy, and then kind of your career trajectory with gaming and media and now blockchain and crypto. Can you just tell me how that journey happened and how you came to what you're doing today? 
I began my journey as a student right after I moved to Israel and I completed my military service back in the middle of the 90s. I wanted to learn something that is not practical, but something that does fit with what I see in life. And that's why I came along you know, the philosophical path in my academic studies until the PhD level. But philosophy is a garbage world. I mean, everybody's speaking about philosophy, but nobody does understand what is philosophy and what does philosophy. I don't. To me, philosophy is all about ethics. And this is what I was looking for. And by ethics, I'm not speaking about, you know, a, a good and evil. One of my mentors is Friedrich Nietzsche, and he wrote an amazing book called Beyond Good and Evil. So yep. it's not about, you know, saying what is good and what is bad. It's more like is... the this tram dilemma, right? If you run over yeah. five people who, you yeah. know, you run over one, and then if you know one of them, one of them is your family, you know, things like that. Is one of them is, you know, a child. Yeah, the stuff you're talking about. Something like that. But ethics is also a tool that I really like, you know, to use on a daily basis. And especially where we are living, I mean, ethics in Israel is a very big question and a very big challenge. Yeah, and we have this dichotomy of study, existence, you know, ourselves, right? Exactly. Okay. And when I finished my studies, I asked myself what I would like to do when I would be, you know, big, when I would be older. And having, you know, an academic career was never a plan for me because it's way too much idealistic based, if you ask me. It's not practical. I mean, teaching philosophy and living from philosophy is not philosophy for me. I wanted to have a philosophical life and use what I'm doing you know, on a daily basis to change a little bit the world and enhance it. Because if you don't use this, then you do nothing. And the best way to do it was for me to embrace the cypherpunk promise I was one of the first subscribers to the Cypherpunk, you know, a mailing list back in the 90s. I was number six, by the way. What and is that? What is Cypherpunk? Oh, Cypherpunk is just a bunch of people trying to build another world without any kind of violence, but using technology. It's a very interesting David Shaw is coming from there. I mean, you know, him, obviously, and a lot of people at Apple also were coming from this very little group of people back in the 90s that were seeing the internet revolution and what is going on with the digital I would say, transformation as an opportunity to have a better world far from, I would say, ultra-capitalist vision and as far as possible from Marxism and communism at this day. So within my philosophical background and a huge, I would say, thirst in technology, I always wanted to be a big coder, but I couldn't do that. I was not that good in math at this time. Now I'm much better since I'm working with the best cryptographers of this world at Concordium, and especially Tobin Pedersen, which is the father of the Pedersen commitment. So my maths are better now. But I wanted to put a little bit of ethics and element of ethics within the technology landscape because I had this very strange feeling at this time, I'm not speaking about the middle of the 2000 years, and 2005 and 6, that it could be the last time that we could put a human touch in what is now done by machines. And it's not kind of being afraid of the machine takeover. I'm not a matrix boy. I'm not this kind of guy. I just had this strange, you know, really, again, feeling. And now it's a fact that the machines are going to take over. And we are now seeing something that we call a post-humanity, something that is not anymore totally human and not totally, you know, machine-based. And if we don't put, you know, enough ethics, we are going to lose it for good. And I decided, you know, to embrace the most advanced technology, of the right time, you know, back in the beginning of my career, it was the gaming industry. I was working for Playtech for years, dealing with regulation and gambling in Europe. And believe me or not, it's fully about ethics. And I moved to the media part and I had a 
quite a big company dealing with advertising technology based on AI, based on real-time bidding. And obviously, ethics was one of the biggest players there because you cannot advertise everything everywhere. You need to put you know, a lot of things and to teach the machine how to respect ethics. And back in 2015, as a Bitcoin holder, I bought my first Bitcoin for less than $200. So you can understand from where I'm coming. Back in 2015, I understood that something is happening in the blockchain evolution. It's not a revolution. It's an evolution. I'm not, I don't believe in revolution, by the way. People that are talking about revolution are either trying to scam you or either trying to kill you. I mean, I'm a French-born guy, so I can let you know that. The French Revolution, for example, is the ultimate proof of what I'm saying now. And, and mm-hmm. the Communist Revolution is also one. So mm-hmm. blockchain is an evolution and there is a lot of ethics and philosophy that were the fundamentals of this evolution. The white paper coming from Satoshi is, for me, a ultimate philosophical document that you can teach today in philosophical schools because it has a lot of interesting things. And I decided to use my humble knowledge, not coming from the traditional philosophy school. My school is much more kind of counter-history philosophical school from the Veda in India until, you know, the ancient Greek, but the anti-Plato people, and until, obviously, Albert Camus, the French philosopher, Joseph Proudhon, the father of anarchism, etc., etc., and those people have written a lot of things that could be today used within you know, the building of our new market while we can do it. I'm dying to read your book. If that's the stuff you're writing about, then this definitely is for me. I love this whole concept of revolutions, and they have been, you know, industrial, technological revolution, uh, agricultural, but the internet, the blockchain. But I think, like, I agree with you that today, most of the revolution is coming from within, and we're having this more of a mindset revolution, a lot of public to private, and you be your own bank, you be your own job, you be your own parent, and you be your own school now in COVID, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, that, that my kids are studying now, you know, on Zoom. Yeah, exactly. So basically, we're kind of like almost autonomous and self-sufficient people. By the way, like you, I also bought Bitcoin when it was very in this very nascent stages. But the difference between me and the majority of hodlers out there, I was actually using Bitcoin the way it was supposed to be used. And that's paying my employees, right? So I had a marketing agency and Indian employees, and I would pay them in Bitcoin, you know, so lo and behold, I should have just stuck to it, you know, but on the other hand, I'm a big believer in crypto and I want it to be a part of the adoption. And that's why I think there's this dichotomy and Bitcoin needs to decide whether it's an asset or whether it's a means of payment and maybe the two will converge and I'm waiting for that to happen, right? But more the store value thing of Bitcoin, obviously, you know, for me, it's more store value because at this stage, I couldn't also believe that the Bitcoin market will stay unregulated. And I still don't believe that. I mean, we need regulation not to forbid things. I mean, the regulation is not, you know, to forbid things. It's just, you know, to put some order. And apropos of philosophy, Proudhon said something very interesting, you know, in his book, when he said that, you know, that private property is theft, which is completely ununderstood because this is not what he said, literally. He said that private property is theft and public property is everything. But he said something very good. What is anarchy? I mean, for us, anarchy means mess. In Hebrew, we say balagan. It's yeah. not that. It's order without power, and it's completely different. And mm-hmm. I see personally, you know, regulation as in our decentralized world as order without centralized power. And this is where we are also at Concordium. And this is, I'm certain of that, where the world market is going to. Right. So the question related to that would be, 
if your regulation is order without power, you know, it doesn't have power on the global level, centralized level, but it does have power on the local level. And that's when they try to enforce it is when you have to go through traditional systems like banking to withdraw your funds and to use them in the real world, the real world by them, they mean, you know, the regulated and the you know, institutional yes. world, right? But so Concordia comes from the world in Greek, in ancient Greek Concordia, and Concordia was the goddess of harmony. Uh -huh. And what Concordia is trying to do is to bring harmony between the legacy world and the new world. I love it. I think that you bring it together so beautifully with uh, philosophy. I wonder if your white paper is also a work of art. So I'll definitely go and check it out. So I want to go into a few last questions as our time is coming to an end. So Lars, back to you. Where you are today, uh, you know, have Concordium, you have a few other businesses, you're an investor. Do you still work? Do you still invest through Sire Capital? You still have the family office? Absolutely. You know, I was fortunate enough to have a very successful business in Saxo Bank. I sold the 25, 26% that I owned of that in an all cash deal, you know, with sort of no earn outs, no swap shares, share swaps or anything like that. So I've kind of been quite liquid for a while. And I tried to spend that on best that, but some of it, you know, like the restaurant, you might see it more spending than investment, right? But try to do it in things that, that interest me, that I think can make a difference. Actually, I have an interesting investment in an Israeli company that works with the production of lab meats, dealing with some of the ethical issues around animal uh, As a farming. vegan, I want to applaud you and thank you for that. <laughs> It's called super meat. It's actually not vegan, but it's producing the yeah. meat in a way that doesn't harm animals. And it comes out Absolutely. of an HBO. But check it out. They actually open this restaurant in Tel Aviv. You do? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was, I was an early investor in that. And, and that's quite indicative of the kind of stuff that I invest in because I think that's super interesting. I think the whole food market is going to change massively, right? And 20, 30 years from now, you're going to have completely different ways of making food, right? So that is a good example. And, and maybe it's also a good investment, but I actually did the investment for my interest in that. And Concordium also is a bigger investment for me. I've carried a substantial part of that financially. Other investors too, but I did my bid. And, and that's because I sincerely, think that that this could be a new big project like a sexual mm -hmm. bank but potentially even much bigger if, if we get it right and we get the right adoption of developers etc and then i got the restaurants i got some sports club stuff that i think life and entertainment lifestyle and entertainment type things which just make life a little happier for me and for everybody else that's not a good place to be in the middle of an epidemic i have to say but we'll work through it and come out on the other side so yes i'm still investing I also have investment in a space company, you know, so I like things that can keep me interested, right? Because I think I've worked really hard for many years with Saxo Bank. I still work hard, but now I reserve the right to really do things that I find interesting and fun and hopefully also with some sort of more general value as I think like Concordium could provide. One last thing I'd like to just say on Concordium, actually, we didn't come so much into that, but the whole identity part is, of course, also shifting the ownership of that identity back to you, as you were touching upon today. Your identity is owned by Facebook. It's owned by all these various things you log into, right? And getting people the ownership of their own identity, even giving them an identity that's hundreds of millions of people, if not billions around the world, that doesn't even have a provable identity, right? And I think that's a very important part of this project to give you back your control of your identity. Control and manage it through, for example, zero knowledge proofs, I mean, which is a technique that enables you to give very select parts of your identity. For example, 
I am this age, this nationality, or I'm a male or a female without giving out your entire full identity yeah, where it's not needed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that kind of stuff we're working with as well in Concordium, right? Yeah, it's the concept, I think that's called DID, decentralized ID, right? And, yeah, so uh, sovereign ID. And, yeah, you know, sovereign you know. ID. And you can give uh, rights to a different organization on which parts of it to use. Yeah, exactly. I think it's more relevant than ever. And uh, especially right now, today in the news, there is an ethics committee. I think it's a Helsinki committee out of which actually the chairman is here in Israel. And they're looking into this whole deal that Pfizer made with the government of Israel to sell and basically to turn over the medical records of the vaccinated individuals. So as a part of the deal that Pfizer will deliver to Israel before any other country, Israel is actually our prime minister, you know, some people would say sold us out. But, you know, in general, the argument is very interesting. They're saying that when people are signing up for a medical study, they sign certain forms that allow the study to share their medical information. When people are going out for a vaccine, that's not a study. You know, we're basically conducting a countrywide study. And without our consent, without our knowledge, our medical information is being transferred, which, you know, we're in the middle of pandemic. So I guess we could be lax a little bit about these things. But on the other hand, what are the implications in the future? How is Pfizer going to be using our medical data? Are we going to be benefiting from it beside, you know, beyond getting vaccine? Can I get some money out of the fact that they're, you know, I'm participating and they're sharing all my information, right? So those are the things that that would have been, I think, would have been solved with if we had used blockchain. But unfortunately, we're not there quite yet. I fully agree. And and the point you're making, if you do wish to share some of the information about yourself, at least you should have the benefit, right? Today, it's Facebook and Google and everybody else that makes money on your identity except you, right? And distributing it often in ways that you maybe wouldn't have done yourself. But of course, if you own all that information yourself, there's a clear possibility also to drive some revenues back to you because it is your data. And that's a very important point. Exactly. And I wouldn't mind, you know, I wouldn't mind. (laughs) Okay, very cool. So guys, I think this has been an amazing, amazing interview with both of you. And I want to ask both of you the last question. Where do you think this world is going? Where do you think the blockchain and crypto world is going? What is it going to look like in five years from now? What should we expect? We'll start with Benny. It's a big question. I would say that the world, I don't know how to answer a question where the world is going. The world is going. (laughs) Well, I don't know. And it's not that important in the way, in the matter, you know. I guess that we are seeing a lot of changes, especially what happened yesterday in the White House. And we are going to see quite a lot of other changes because of what happened with this pandemic. But one thing is sure is that the restart, a chance that we had at the beginning of the pandemic is lost. I mean, we are going to see quite a lot of consolidation and a lot of new businesses that are also coming up based on what happened to the humanity. And in those businesses, I mean, they will have a kind of need for a specific tech. And this is where I see blockchain today, post-quantum computing tomorrow, a entering and solving real issues, but mainly enabling new businesses and new ventures to be created. I mean, if you think about that, the TCIP protocol that was invented 50 years ago, I guess, nobody thought about, you know, what will be the ultimate use case of the TCIP protocol. And this TCIP protocol just enabled Facebook, Google, Amazon, Tesla, everybody. So I'm certain that the next days or the next years, I would say, are going to be very challenging 
we're going to have a lot of difficulties to protect our privacy as human beings, to protect our privacy as businesses. And I'm certain that we are going to gently fight for those rights using technology in a proper way is going to be our weapon against those people and those entities that are willing, you know, to use our privacy and our digital identity without any kind of consent. This is the main challenge for us. How are we going to mitigate this danger related mm -hmm. to our identity in general and digital identity in particular? I love it. Thank you, Benny. Lars, do you have anything to add to that about your vision for the future, for this industry and for yourself? Yeah, I think uh, Benny pinned some very important things that I would like to build a little bit further on. You know, I have probably, I am the oldest guy on this call, so I was there when the internet was non-existent, right? I can remember a world without the internet. I can remember a world when it came out and began to be interesting. And yeah, I can remember, for example, a statement from Margaret Dreesen back, it must have been around 92 or 93, that we know this internet is going to make a big difference, but we don't know exactly how. It's just a little bit what Ben is also saying. And I remember even in the late 90s having discussions with brokers and big bankers that, you know, we were wasting our time focusing all our efforts on building an internet platform. This was a fad. It would go away. And some of these conversations remind me a little bit about the conversation you have about blockchain, right? And I think many of us in the space are a little bit frustrated that blockchain has not develop faster for some kind of actual mainstream adoption. Most of the adoption is in closed, closed environments with permission-based blockchains. And there you can really question how much does it bring just another database, right? But the real opportunity is to create new marketplaces, new interactions via a much broaderly and permission-less distributed uh, platform, right? So I'm very much with what Ben is at that time in the internet, we could not predict the enormous impact exactly where it would happen. Nobody knew about Facebook because then we would obviously all have built it immediately, right? Nobody knew uh, search was going to be so massive, although we were early adopters of it in our marketing. But that's the same here. You know, there's uh, enormous new possibilities being opened for business by removing the single points of failure, by removing the trust problem, right? Now, one thing that I know from banking and from any kind of interrelation in business is the enormous amount of resources you spent on knowing that your counterpart is actually the person that you think that counterpart is gigantic. I would say it's probably 10% of global GDP that goes into various industries whose primary function is establishing trust between people, right? Now, blockchain clearly opens a possibility that you can immediately trust what you agree with another party because you can build it into smart contracts you can know that person has identified in an acceptable and credible manner so if you can remove this problem of how complicated it is to create trust this will open for so many business models today that you can't do in the high end and in the small end because there's things that i could do with a person completely unknown to me for like a hundred bucks but even so, I might shy away from it, right? Because, you know, that person's probably not going to pay me the hundred bucks if he ends up owing yeah. it to me, right? So both from the top and from the bottom, there will be so many business models that will be made possible if we can just trust that people will execute their side of the deal. And I often say that I believe actually that there's more business in this world that doesn't get done today because of this problem 
than the actual business that does get done. Let me give you an example. In Saxon Bank, when we might sometimes have a big client come and say, I would like to trade Bulgarian shares or something like that, right? I'll say, okay, we are not, we're like opportunistic. If we can make money on trading Bulgarian shares in, in a safe way, we'll do it. So we'll send somebody down to Bulgaria, find a broker, and we'll spend $50,000 on trying to establish whether this was a credible counterpart or not. Obviously, these things are getting easier today. But just if we didn't think that we could make that money, obviously we wouldn't send somebody to Bulgaria, right? So that business wouldn't get done. And I think at all levels here, that is the real promise of the blockchain is that we can actually be in a situation where you can meet a person that you never set eye on before. You can know that that person is identified. You can know that person will actually do their side of the deal that you agree to. And the amount of business that that can create is multiples, I think, of what's going on today. How exactly that will manifest itself, I can't tell you, because then I would be the owner of Amazon, Google, and Facebook <laughs> already, right? But it will happen. And that's where creating the right foundation for people to come up with that innovation, that's what we're trying to do, give them a safe environment to create that kind of innovation. I think we need innovation, but we also need some standards, right? Because this is a new industry. And I have this hobby of looking at smart contracts myself. Every time there is a new smart contract, a new deal. So we're in the space of tokenization. So all of the competitors or even platforms that are tokenizing themselves. So I go and I look at a smart contract. And then SEC presumably goes and looks at the same smart contract and somehow they don't see what I see. You know, I've seen some smart contracts that leave it to interpretation, certain things that I would never leave to interpretation, things like compliance and even which entity you're buying, right? With ICOs, for example, a smart contract did not specify what you're buying, right? It was at the, at the discretion of the platform itself. You know, you might have bought a part ticket to Disneyland, you know, and it's the same smart contract as you buying, I don't know, your subscription for HubSpot. So, you know, I think smart contracts are extremely interesting. I believe that there needs to be standards. And I think that you guys, from what I've seen on the website for Concordium, you have a unique way to do smart contracts. Maybe we'll do another podcast and learn more about the company because I think this is super fascinating. So, but today I'd like to thank both of you, Lars and Benny. It was great having you on the Block Solid thank podcast. Thank you very much. Absolutely. And you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or by visiting our website at solidblog.co slash podcast. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate and review and spread the word. Bye, guys.